So if you've got a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open it up to the New Testament Gospel of John, chapter 11. If, if believing the message of Easter doesn't give us hope in this life and hope beyond the grave, then we haven't fully understood the message of Easter. And I don't want you to take my word for it because John 11 is going to is going to unearth that truth so that we can see it plainly in the pages of God's word. This is an eyewitness account from the disciple John. So follow along with me as I read John 11, beginning in verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. So they're traveling the two miles from Jerusalem. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound, hand and foot, with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Skip down to verse 53. 
So from that day, from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus performed this miracle to answer two questions. This sign, this miracle answers two questions for us. Who is Jesus and what does he do? And the answer to the first question, who is Jesus, in this passage is, he's the Messiah. He's the long-promised one. He's the Son of God. He's God the Son. And what does he do? He conquers death. He's the one who has power over death. And in that way, John 11 is a kind of early preview of that unique, one-of-a-kind resurrection that takes place on Easter Sunday. This is a, an early showing of the power of Jesus over death. And so John 11, I, I hope we're going to see this with our remaining time, gives us three truths that we do well to remember on Easter Sunday. The first is this. Easter tells us, number one, that death is an intruder. Death is an intruder. Without knowing all of you here, I can make a, a fairly good guess that we all have this in common. We don't like death. We're not fans. We're not, we're not pro-death. Woody Allen was a controversial figure, to put it mildly. But he was asked a question, and his answer to the question wasn't a, a very controversial answer. He was asked this question many years ago. They said, what do you think about death? And he said, I'm strongly against it. We probably resonate with that, right? The, the Bible doesn't speak in sanguine or optimistic terms about about death. It doesn't just talk about it, you know, as being a, a natural process. It's just the way of the world and it's a natural thing. The Bible names death, it personifies death, and it says, you know what death is? It's the last enemy. It's, it's the arch rival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Death steals. Death is an ogre in the Bible. We hate death. And you don't necessarily need a Bible to hate death. Just live a little while. You'll catch on. Even, even a couple days ago, right here, this is very, very new and very fresh for, for many of us, especially for the Lewis family. So many of you know Josh and Allison Lewis and their, their children and they're dear friends of ours and we're grateful for God's grace in their lives and in this church. And they had a crisis leading right into this, this very weekend. We're thankful that they're all okay now, but it, it did not look good. Many of us heard the news and instantly stopped whatever we were doing and started praying for them, started praying for their daughter, Izzy, their 11-year-old girl who had to be rushed to Children's Hospital. She's a, Izzy's type 1 diabetic. And they found out later what, what went wrong. Their, the insulin pump malfunctioned and it started just filling up and dumping lethal dosages of insulin into her system, and it shut her down. And, and later, once, once the situation had stabilized in God's grace, Allison, their mom, uh, Izzy's mom, came back and helped the rest of us who had been praying to understand what had taken place. And this is just an excerpt of what she wrote. Josh, that's her husband, jerked me awake and yelled that something was wrong. So there's backstory here. The last time he woke me like that, Ava was dying. Ava, they, they lost Ava a few years ago. Ava was under six, just under six months old when she passed. And she said, the last time he woke me like that, Ava was dying. 
I ran into the living room to see foamy saliva dripping out of Izzy's mouth as her body thrashed around on the floor. Scrambling for her emergency meds, I realized that one by one, the other kids were racing in on a nightmare. I stabbed the needle through her pants into her thigh, and the seizing soon stopped. But she wasn't regaining consciousness. God, bring her back. Dear God, bring her back. I laid my chest across hers and pleaded for my baby's life. Death is not the way it was meant to be in this world. That was not the original design. Death is a bully. Who else picks on 11-year-old girls? Death is an enemy. It's the last enemy. And Jesus, what happens in John 11 is dramatic because Jesus is facing up with his arch rival. It's the protagonist of the Bible and the antagonist of the Bible. And Jesus doesn't come to the tomb of Lazarus mumbling on about natural processes of death. And he doesn't come to the tomb of Lazarus ready to lead them in a rousing rendition of the circle of life. This is not okay what has just happened. And you can see it on his face, and you can hear it in his words. This is a confrontation moment. Why? Because, because death is an intruder. And Easter also teaches us, number two, death won't have the last word. What glorious truth that is. Death won't have the last word. So before Jesus arrives... So, you know, even, even back, you back up a few days, and Lazarus is sick. He's gravely ill. It doesn't look good. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. Jesus is 90 miles away in the Transjordan. He's a four-day trip away. If he leaves the moment he gets that note, he's, it's going to take him four days to get there. But what does Jesus do? He finds out that Lazarus is gravely ill, and he books two more nights at the Transjordan Motel. He says, we stay here. And he tells his disciples, Lazarus is going to die, but then I'm going to raise him. And then Jesus comes, right? And he, he, he notifies his disciples. They don't believe it. They don't even understand what he's saying. They're like, so you're saying he's sleeping and you're gonna wake him up. He's like, I'm not talking about sleep. He's gonna die and then I'm gonna raise him. So nobody's understanding it is not, it is not clicking, right? And you can see it's not just not clicking with them. It's not clicking with everybody else who comes into contact with Jesus. Lazarus' sister, Martha, she sees Jesus at, in verse 21. And what does she say? She uses... If only language. Her heart's not filled with faith and, and the, the, the hope of resurrection. She says, if you had been here four days ago, he wouldn't be in the tomb. Why didn't you take the red eye, right? That's her posture. You could have healed him. Now he's dead, long dead. And then Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And she still doesn't get it. Look at verse 24. I, yeah, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, she doesn't have a category. She has a category for him rising on the last day. She doesn't have a category for him rising this day, today. And that's when Jesus interrupts and he says, um, so you've got a good doctrine of the resurrection on the last day. That's great. You went to Sunday school. Awesome. I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, resurrection just walked into your town. Resurrection is standing in front of you. I'm the resurrection and the life. She still doesn't get it. 
know, we have this thought sometimes, we'll go back into the ancient world and we think, they're so gullible, they were just ready to believe anything. They're not believing it. He's standing right in front of her and she's not believing it. And you can tell she's not believing it because in verse 28, when Jesus approaches the tomb and he says, remove the stone, she doesn't start counting down from 10. She's not excited. Can't wait to see what happens. You know what she says? She's being very practical. She says, hold on, with all due respect, you remove that stone, it gets really unpleasant. It's going to be embarrassing. What's she talking about? Science. (laughs) She's talking about decomposition. She says, it is what it is. It's been four days. He's changed. That's her, that's her response. I, I remember um, as a boy reading the old King James Version. That's the version I, in my earliest years, that's the version I was most familiar with. And I remember reading this account as a boy. And, and it's, Jesus comes up and he says, take ye away the stone. And then Martha says, but Lord, he stinketh. And that did it for me. I mean, I I loved the Bible that day. It's like, I thought Martha is so hilarious. (laughs) Again, what's, what's the point, though? The point that comes through with crystal clarity is nobody on the scene expects a resurrection even after he's waving it in their face that he's about to do this. But death's not going to have the last word. You keep reading and you find out this Jesus has power over death. And in the space of the next six verses, Jesus' emotions ride from deep sadness to to great uh, anger, really. But it starts with sadness. um, As a teenager, I I decided one day, I thought, I want to start memorizing verses of the Bible. I was familiar with some verses and could kind of quote them once you got it started, but I didn't know where to find them. I didn't know the address of that in the Bible, and so I went and got a blue notebook. I think I still have this notebook. Went and got a blue notebook, opened up to the first page, and thought, okay, what verses do I know? I'm just kind of clicking my pen. Well, John 3.16, so I'll write that down. This is a really strong start. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I wrote it out and I looked and it's like, okay, great. What else do I know? I'm just thinking 10 seconds, 15 seconds passes. And I'm like, this is discouraging. I don't know another verse. Like that's, that's the one. That's the only one I know. And then it dawned on me. I know another verse and it's right here. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And I wrote it down, so I'm like, I just doubled my, my repertoire of all the verses that I knew. That was it. That was it right there, John 3, 16 and John eleven thirty five. 35. Shortest verse in the Bible, but don't, don't lose the profundity of those two words. Jesus wept. Do you know who this Jesus was? He's God's son. He said, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Paul says, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus in bodily form. What are you seeing in John 11, 35? You're seeing God weeps. He is not detached. He is not impervious. He is not distant or aloof. And there's Jesus weeping in John 11, 35. And I don't think he's just weeping over Lazarus. Lazarus will be back in a minute. 
It can't just be about Lazarus. He knows that he was going to raise Lazarus before he even got to Bethany. It's not Lazarus. There's something bigger going on here. It makes me think, by way of analogy, of um, if you've ever seen The Lord of the Rings and Frodo, the, the hobbit, Frodo Baggins, is tasked and he volunteers to do what no one else in Middle Earth can do. He is to carry the ring, the ring of power, and you need to walk that on your journey and you need to get all the way to the fires of Mordor and you need to be the one who casts the ring of power into the fires of Mordor and that's going to break the spell of evil over Middle Earth. He's the only one who can do it. But if you know the story, you know the longer Frodo walks, what? The heavier, the heavier it gets. John 11.35 is Jesus as ring bearer. And it's getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And, and I, again, it's not just Lazarus. I think the whole sweep of human pain in human history is passing before his mind's eye as the omniscient God touching his deity. I think everything's swirling in his head in an instant. Everything from the blood of Abel shed by his older brother Cain in the book of Genesis all the way to the showers at Auschwitz, all the way to the 5,000 lynchings that took place in under a century in American history, all the way to the blood on the floor of the Columbine High School, all the way to this weekend and the violence that erupts in this earth. It's all there flashing before his mind and he buckles. The man who had been prophesied, who was appointed to carry our griefs and bear our sorrows and he's feeling the weight of the ring. Jesus wept. It's an awesome thing. Don't move too quickly past it. But he's not just there to cry. You check them out in a couple of verses. Matter of fact, in both verses 33 and 38, describe Jesus as, in our translation that I was reading a moment ago, deeply moved. Now, I would just submit to you that that deeply moved translation is a weak translation. And virtually all the other English translations are weak as well. Ironically, the best translation of this one is The Message by Eugene Peterson. Check it out. But here's the deal. They're translating a Greek word that's used in a number of other places. I'll show you two of them and see if you can find what, what it's translated, what that word is translated into. Here's Mark 14, 15. It uses the same Greek word. For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they began to scold her. What do you think the word is? The word scold is that same exact Greek word that's translated in our passage, deeply moved. And then another one, Mark 143. I could take you to other places, but I'll just look at these two. Mark 143. Then he sternly warned them and sent him away at once. What do you think the word is? It's that verb, sternly warned. Friends, deeply moved is soft. Deeply moved doesn't fully capture the emotion of this moment. That's why Pastor Tim Keller says, a better translation of verse 38 might go something like this. Jesus infuriated came to the tomb. Now, doesn't that change the whole complexion of this moment in John 11? Now we see it's a showdown. Jesus comes to the tomb spitting angry. He is mad. Death is personified. He's not mad at the rocks. He's not mad at the tomb. He's angry at death and what death has wreaked in his world. He made this world. It's not supposed to be that way. He's angry. 
Friends, Easter isn't all flowers and bunnies. Look, insofar as flowers and bunnies and chicks maybe capture the motif of fresh life, wonderful, but that's not the whole picture. Easter is confrontation. Easter is a throwdown. And this miracle gives us a peek. When we see Jesus approaching that tomb, we see his hatred of death and his power over death. He says, take away the stone, and he's got an attitude. And I love that. Take away the stone. And friends, when he says, take away the stone, don't miss it. All history hangs in the balance right here. If Jesus calls Lazarus and nobody emerges from the tomb, we have a major problem. If Jesus calls out for Lazarus to emerge from the tomb and he doesn't come forward, don't go to church another day in your life. We're wasting our time. Because Jesus, a moment ago, said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and yet here he called Lazarus to come out and it was crickets. That's a problem. But that's not what happened. And the people who were there brought this story, reported this story, and now we have it here in our text. Here's what happened. Jesus walked up to the tomb, said, I'm going to need you to move that stone. And then three words later, here comes Lazarus. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and he appears. And he's still got, he's still got the linens hanging. He's still got it around his face. He's blinking his way out into the sunlight. Lazarus emerges. Jesus doesn't have to ask twice. Lazarus comes, the early church fathers used to say, had Jesus not said, Lazarus, come out, all the graves would have opened. (laughs) And we know that's true because we keep reading our New Testament and we find out what happens when this Jesus comes back and he doesn't spell out one person. He says, it's over, death, your game is up. And he gives a cry of command as he descends and all the dead emerge. Death is no more. Death won't have the last word. Why? Because someone has come and that someone is stronger than death. That's the glory of the truth of Easter. Christianity is not merely a set of doctrines to which we subscribe. Christianity is a promise that the enemy that's hounded us all our days will fall. And great will be his fall. We who have trusted in Jesus Christ this morning, we will hear Jesus descending from the clouds, fire in his eyes, sword in his hand, tattoo, king of kings and lord of lords, right on his thigh, right? He's coming down in domination mode. And what is he saying on his way down? He's saying, death, where's your sting? I, I think of 1 Corinthians 15, that, those words as holy smack talk because that's exactly what's happening. He's trucking toward earth and he's saying, death, what do you got now? You got nothing now. Your, your game is up now. The great hymn captured this beautifully. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, he, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Huh. Easter tells us, one, death is an intruder. Two, death won't have the last word. And three, Easter tells us life can begin now. Life can begin now. I love this. Jesus 
doesn't say, I am the resurrection, full stop. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's not talking about one thing with two words. He's talking about two distinct things. How do you know? Because he unpacks them distinctly. In other words, I am the resurrection. What are you getting at? Verse 25 is what I'm getting at. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. There's life on the other side of death is what I'm talking about when I say I'm the resurrection. And I'm the life. What are you driving at there? Verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That is, Jesus is saying, because I'm the resurrection and the life, you who believe in me get life on the other side of your death. And because I'm the resurrection and the life, you who believe in me get life with God now. It starts now. You don't have to die to get life with God. It starts today. You believe and life comes in. It breaks in on your dead soul. And he's saying to Martha, you believe this? Do you grasp how awesome this is? I can't find better question to turn in your direction. I think if Jesus were standing here, he wouldn't just ask Martha. Martha's not here. You are. And Jesus might just turn to you and say, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Not just that you can have life after death, but life with God now. You might say, what, what do I need to believe? You know, I believe that Jesus existed. I believe that he lived. That's a great start. What are the essential truths that must be believed for us to step into and experience this life that God has for us? And I'm going to ask you a number of questions. Do you believe that Jesus had to die for you because your sins had separated you from a holy God? Do you believe that? You were so bad, he had to die to save you. Not only that, do you believe that he was glad to die for you? Because he loved you so much, he sent, the Father sent the Son to come and take it for you, to take your death, your sin, your guilt, your shame, to become your substitute, to hang there in your place on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe his perfect obedience can be wrapped around you and count as yours? <laughs> That's why we call the central message of the Christian faith a gospel. The word gospel just means good news. you believe that? You believe his death in your place removes all possibility for your future condemnation and that judgment can never find you. You believe that? Do you believe that he can not only get you through your death, but he can get you through this life? Come what may, whatever hell throws at you, do you believe he'll walk with you through fire? Look, one chapter ago in John chapter 10, Jesus sized up the situation of the world. He said, we got two forces at work here. It's really simple. You got a thief who's come to steal and kill and destroy. Then you got me. And I came to give you life and life abundantly. Which way do you want it? He's offering life and that abundantly. Look, let's not dumb that down into kind of nominal Christianity. If by giving life and life abundantly. If Jesus just meant, I'm going to come and I'm going to give you life abundantly by helping Christian people do Christian things and say some prayers and kind of help you get goosebumps every now and then when you sing your favorite song. If, if that's what Jesus meant by life abundantly, I'd like a refund. That is deeply underwhelming. It's got to be more than that, right? It's Easter, y'all. It's Easter. And standing, as it were, next to the empty tomb, 
Why would we settle for anything less than radically new life? <laughs> the tomb yawns open and there's no one inside. What can we expect but new life right here? You don't need a refund policy. There's new life that's possible. Here's the way Jesus stacks it up for us, right? He says, turn from self-rule and believe in me. Turn from self-rule. Why? Because he's really good at leading us. He's really trustworthy. He's genuinely for us. And there aren't two steering wheels on the Christian life. There's one, and it belongs to Jesus. Turn from self-rule. And two, believe in me. Believe that what I did on the cross was enough to cover everything, everything you've done, everything you will do into your future. And if you say, okay, so that's the way it's sized up. So turn from self-rule, believe on me. And then what? To which Jesus would say, where do we start? Sin's forgiven, let's just begin there. I'll hold you in the palm of my hand. I'll walk with you through deep waters. I'll walk with you through fire. I'll show you where the good stuff is. I'll show you where lasting joy is found. I'll show you where unshakable hope is found. I'll take you and bring you into God's family. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of you, empowering you from the inside. All the wiring is going to work. You're going to know why you exist. Then I'm going to put other Christians around you. They're going to help you take off your grave clothes. You guys are going to help one another walk out into the light. Everything's going to be different, and it starts the moment you believe. Friends, that's real Christianity. Don't take some cheap substitute. That's the real thing. It's an overhaul. So, so what do you do? You run to the living, risen Jesus. And what better day to run to Jesus? It's Easter Sunday. I mean, could you pick a better day? I mean, how easy is it going to be to tell your story if today's the day for you to tell your story and say, you know what, come to think of it, it was Easter Sunday in 2019 that I heard him call my name and I found myself running in his direction. It was that Easter Sunday, 2019. We have hope on the other side of, the, of death. We have hope through the empty tomb. We have life available now with God. The question is, do you want in?